podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another 100 meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com. Hello, and welcome to Lakeside Drive. In this episode, we chat with Tony Cohen Brown, who is an entrepreneur working in not just Formula One, but talking about all things sport, politics, and everything in between. Tony, welcome to Lakeside Drive. Thank you for being here. You have had a very busy couple of weeks by the looks of things. <laughs> yeah, I have. Thank you for having me. First of all, I'm excited to be here and to, to chat with you. And yeah, I've realised that, wow, the the pandemic definitely got me out of my habit of travelling and travelling is now feels really exhausting. And I'm like, how do I used to do this? Um, I need help. Um, but yeah, it was I did the New York Red Bull launch Aston Martin hosted the fan event at their launch and then somehow landed up at the Alpine car launch as well. So it was fun. Like that was my first time experiencing all the different car launches. Wow. Fantastic. And so many close together and we'll get stuck into the launches and what we're learning about the different teams through that that process in a little bit. Um, I'd love to start first with just a little bit about your background though, because your route to being involved in motorsport is a non-traditional one, you might say. Um, But content creation has always been a part of your life, I think. So tell us about your journey. That's actually a really good point. Yeah, I've always had like a second gig. I've always had something that I needed to pour my creativity in, probably because the um, route that I went down both for educational and jobs was not boring, but pretty standard. And standard is probably the wrong word as well. Just not, you know, <laughs> uncreative. I'm just going to call it that. Okay. I found it creative, but the, there's, you know, it was politics, international relations, diplomacy. Mm. A lot of people would argue, and myself included, that you need to be very creative when you're doing international diplomacy. Um, <laughs> but I've always had something on the side. And what's been interesting is nearly every single job I ever got, every job offer, was because they were interested in the things that I'd created on the side, mm. not my seven years of studying and my master's degrees and my good grades. Like They're like, yeah, yeah, that's great. Talk to us about this thing. And so <laughs> it took me a while to realize that, but I've always been creating content in one way, shape or form, whether it's building communities, building websites, blogs, newsletters, you name it. And I think it's also because I was part of that generation where I remember the world pre-internet and Mm. then the start of the internet then the mobile era and now we're in this you know entering a whole new era of both the internet and mobile and AI and so I think I've loved just discovering these different spaces and taking advantage of that so yes actually it's a really good point even though I've my my journey as a as an adult and career-wise has been in politics tech tech and politics and now motorsports I've always loved and I've realized that the way I got people engaged, the way I helped, you know, policymakers understand policy, the way I got presidential candidates um, interested in how they can tell their story or um, now in motorsports and before that in tech was storytelling. Like I just love storytelling and I love discovering facts and getting people excited about sharing little tidbits left, right and centre. So yeah, it's always been both content creation and I think storytelling and education in one way, shape or form. I'd never thought about it like that, to that extent. <laughs> yeah, okay. And has that 
Um, did it click to you that that's what you were doing at the time? Like while you were working in, you know, like you said, politics and, and the like, did it click for you that you were, that's what you were doing? Yes and no. It clicked for me in the one of the first speaking opportunities I ever had. I never called it content creation. It clicked mm. for me in that it was a side thing. It clicked for me in that I was just curious and I learned by doing. So mm-hmm. I was like, I can read all of these things about the power of SEO and branding online and building online communities, but actually I'll actually understand it. I've also got a really bad memory like a sieve, like a fish, like I forget everything, <laughs> but I don't forget things that I do. I don't forget things that I build. Mm-hmm. I don't forget lived ex- like experiences that I actually go through the motions. Mm-hmm. And so I've all, that has always been my go-to for learning. And so I kind of view that's what I was doing every time I was picking up a project left, right and center. I got an understanding that that was what I was trying to do is teach myself a few things. I don't think I ever thought of it as content creation per se. Um, but yeah, I it, it something clicked for me when my first big speaking opportunity was from Google when I was in Brussels, and they're like, "We want you to talk to us about branding online." And at the time, I was working in the European Commission, so policy making, policy, politics, and I was like, "You want me to talk about branding online? Are you sure? Are you sure you have a the right person, and you sure this is the right topic for this crowd?" Mm. And they were like, "Yes, because politicians and policymakers still don't understand the power of the internet." And this was I'm aging myself, but this was 15, 17 years ago when. It was still novel. Um, But I think to answer your question, I really understood this maybe a year, four, uh, five, six years ago when I was like, Mm. that's what I do. In everything that I do, I'm I'm creating content in the form of a newsletter, a podcast, because that's how I sell. That's how I convince people. I don't just throw numbers on the chart. I take you on a journey, um, Mm. which I absolutely love. Um, But yeah, I've only started calling it content creation maybe Four years ago, five years ago. Well, it wasn't. I just don't think it was a concept that really exactly, precisely. It's exactly as I was going to say. Like, I just it wasn't even a thing that was content creation as a um, you know kind of word, (laughs) two words, but a word. It didn't really exist. Yeah, didn't exist. Um, No, and the creator economy has definitely boomed in the last couple of years for sure, Mm. Um, and it's boomed in America. So it's been funny to your point coming back from Europe and being like, oh, that's what was happening. Got you. Yeah. Um, yes. And and people in Europe going, what do you mean by creative economy? What do you mean by content creation? You mean you're a freelancer? I was like, eh, not quite, but yes, understood. You're kind of out of the corporate world, let's call it that, for for a moment. What was it that drove your decision to take that step and carve your own path in a very different way? Um, I think part of it was forced. I was forced on a sabbatical because I'm a European living in America. Mm-hmm. Jobs had changed. Um, pandemic happened. And so I was like, oh, this is actually, I've got an opportunity to, and I think a lot of people, I don't think I'm alone in, in this, but I had an opportunity to either jump straight into the next job and figure that out or realising what was happening globally, thinking, wait, hold on a minute, I haven't stopped working in the last decade. Maybe there's an opportunity to take a step back and Mm. to take, sort of have a look of what's happening and what do I truly want. And I I was able to afford myself that luxury because I'd worked in tech um, for half a decade. And so I was able to do that. And it's something quite interesting when you ask yourself the question, why would anyone want to hang out with me if you take away, and who am I? If you take away my job title, you take away the company I work for, you take away my job description, why at a dinner party should anyone ever be sat next to me? And it's a kind of a weird thing to go through. And two things happen. A, I was very thankful for all the other things that I had done on the side, realizing I never treated my life as purely my job, mm-hmm. even though I, I always thought of myself as extremely careerist, but I always had these other things, whether it was, you know, being a, a pundit on the BBC radio, building a website, whatever it was. And I was like, okay, so there's this that you've always, you've actually, there's a through line here that you've always been doing other things. Um, but then it did give me an opportunity to be, what do I love doing? And what, who am I? And what, you know, what makes me tick and what gets me angry? And like everyone, I was just like, okay, and now I need to keep myself a little bit busy and started a newsletter and started writing. And I honestly will say that I kind of fell into this. So mm. I lived in lived in Brussels for 20 odd years, um, for an hour away from Spa-Francorchamps, very iconic, um, obviously Formula One um, GP track. 
and fell in and out of love with the sport. My dad got me into it. I think like many people, you have this curve of you love it, you don't see yourself in it, you don't see anyone who looks like you, you get frustrated Mm -hmm. by it, in and out. And then I fell back into it as, again, this incredible like perfect storm had happened, which was pandemic, drive to survive, the rise of the creator economy, the rise of TikTok, um, everyone getting super creative. And I started realizing friends around me were actually also getting into the sport and building communities. I wanted to talk about it. And one of my friends was sending me a bunch, well, quite a few of my friends were sending me a bunch of messages saying, can you explain this to me? Explain that to me. They were clearly watching Drive to Survive or getting back into the sport. (laughs) And one of my friends just asked me, you know, give me 10 bullet points. What do I need to know for the next GP? Little did we know that it would be a while until we had our next live Mm. race. And... I started writing and I ended up being like a 54 page guide. And he was like, I'm not fucking reading this. Like, I asked you for 10 <laughs> bullet points. What's this? Um, not succinct. That wasn't my forte, but that was, uh, that was the first iteration of the beginner's guide. So really, truly, I just fell into it. Mm. Um, I, I'd love to, to pretend it was a well thought out plan and, you know, decades in the making. It wasn't. I just, I just fell into it. And then... Aston Martin said hello and they reach out and they want to collaborate. (laughs) Not come and apply to work with us, but we want to work with you. Tell us about that moment. So that happened and, again, there's there's always these weird things in life where you're just like, I wonder how it would have been played out differently if this hadn't Mm. happened or that hadn't happened. But had the guide very starkly remembering my friend going, I'm not reading this, this is way too long, and realising, wait, how do people consume? And his late stats have just come out that like 14% of Gen Z adults get their news today from TikTok, which is mm. completely wild to me. That blows um, my mind. <laughs> but at the time, TikTok was, right? It blows. Yeah. And I had this, com- we were having this conversation on, on Twitter today, like is TikTok social? Is it TV? Is it search? Like what has it become? Mm. And it's all the same. But I was enjoying TikTok at the time very much because it was offering this, you know, this opportunity to get away from the pandemic. And these people were so creative on TikTok and it brought me a lot of joy. And I still have videos of just me giggling and watching these videos. And my husband was like, what are you doing? (laughs) And I had this thing of like, there's something special here that I'm excited by. And so I looked at my 54 page beginner's guy, I looked at TikTok and thought, well, what if I can take this body of work and start doing it in bite-sized information, realizing that this is how people are getting their content Mm. again. This is how people are being educated. I'm a big believer in YouTube. Every time I don't know the answer to something, I will Google it, but then I'll also go on YouTube and look for it. And so I, again, just started breaking it down, doing short videos. And a couple of my videos blew up, which got me really excited. And they blew up very early on. And they blew up because people were very angry at me or disagreed with me or didn't like the way I said a word in French. It was very funny. And I was like, okay, this is this is cool. And and then started doing a video or two a day. And to your point, then Aston Martin knocked on my door, which was interesting because I approached it like I approached client work when I was working in agency or working in tech, which was like, be prepared, have your spiel, you're going to sell. Mm. And they were just like, no, 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 we're, we're sold. What you don't seem to understand is we've been consuming your content for the last year. And that was my big realization is, yeah, TikTok became my portfolio. TikTok mm. was just like, this is my values. This is how I do my research. This is how I communicate. Basically, this is who I am. So if you're going to work with me, TikTok is so much more than, I think, a podcast or a newsletter. You know exactly what you're getting. There's no hiding mm. behind a screen with, with TikTok. And there's no pretending as well, I think. And um, so that was the first thing that surprised me. The second thing that I really loved was it was all women on the call, which was unsurpri- was surprising for, for this industry. But what I loved of it also it was women who weren't part of the industry. So they said, well, look we are new to this industry, so we've had to learn a lot. And so we went to your TikTok to learn about the industry. Wow. And I was like, oh, this is magical. Like there's yeah. this, you couldn't, you couldn't make this up. And so they were just like, this makes sense to us. Um, and started the journey of now a two-year relationship with, with Aston Martin. And to your point, the idea here is not for me to become part of the team. The idea truly is you can offer us something different. We can tap in via your content into a different audience. And I think this is something that we're seeing with a lot of the teams, which I think we touched upon very briefly, which is we need to figure out how we tap into a new audience. And sometimes Mm. using a different channel or platform isn't enough. We need to 
talk in a different way. We need to create content that is going to attract this audience. You know, the 70-year-old man probably doesn't want to get fed the same content as a 16-year-old girl in Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. They might have a different, they might want the same thing, which is Formula One content that's both entertaining and educational. But the delivery, the actual messaging, the actual content might be different um, or the desire might be different. And that was my first realization of, oh, this is what it looks like for brands and teams to partner and collaborate with content creators, not just, to your point, hire them because they like what they're doing. Okay, now you can join the team and sing the same song as everyone else. (laughs) Right. So let's let's talk about content creators (laughs) in in Formula One then. Um, Because I think that's, like you said, it's such a shift in terms of the opportunity that they have and that they've identified in terms of other ways to tap into different groups um, of fans, um, of spectators um, who, like you said, want to digest different types of information in different ways. Yeah. How important do you think it is to develop content and have content creators in particular from outside the UK as well? But a lot, And where does that fit alongside kind of traditional media? How do they work together? That's a million-dollar question, isn't it? How do they work together? Um, I think the way I look at it is twofold. A, I don't think it's an or situation. I think it's an and situation. I don't think, Mm. you know, content creators here are here to replace traditional media. You know, I still need the breaking news. I still need the journalist who's on the beat, who's following everything very, very carefully. I still need the journalist who has a deep knowledge of an industry and a sport and who can throw out a date and tell me why this, you know, breaking piece of information is is news and important. Mm. Um, So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is... Formula One is very, very European. It's also very Anglo-Saxon and it's very French. Um, It's always been like that. There's a lot of history behind why, A, um, the sport is very European. There's deep history about why there are so many of the teams based in the UK and there's so many French-speaking people in in this sport as well. And, And what I think they too often forget is as the sport has more global awareness and more global fans you're going to need to tailor your messaging and you're going to need to tailor the way you talk. And there's an element that I think Americans, and I remember doing a survey around this, but Americans do want to keep someone like Martin Brundle and Crofty. They're like, this is fun. Like we we, we feel like we're getting the authentic Formula One experience, Mm -hmm. but I also would love more. I would also love, you know, presenters or content creators who help me understand the sport in, in a language and in a way that I want to digest. And so I think there's something magical here of brands tapping into creators without having to rejig their whole infrastructure. But there's, there's, and the reason why I think it's magical is because this content creator already has their audience. Like my audience right now, bizarrely, is 50-50 split men and women. Sometimes it skews a little bit more on the with the women, but sometimes it also skews a little bit more on the male side. But also it's a 50-50 split between Europeans and Americans, which is bizarre to me because I am a European, but I'm based Mm. in America right now. So I actually understand and I see the American landscape and I see the sports fans and I see what they, you know, what gets them excited because I have boots on the ground. Um, And so I think what the, what, again, is powerful for the teams here is if you work with content creators, you're actually not just getting their content and their way of thinking, but you can tap into their audience that is already bought into whatever this creator is selling you um, or selling you. And I don't mean actually like a physical product, but selling you on a story yeah. arc or a, a yeah. way of telling a story. So I think that mm. for me is is what's interesting um, with the brands. And, and look, there's a shift of power that has happened over the years away from the FIA and Formula One to the teams and then the teams to the drivers. And I think there's a similar shift of power and trust of where people put their trust. So I think as a fan, you're more likely to put your trust in the driver than a team, than in Formula One, than in the FIA. And I think it's similar with traditional institutions. There is a trust that is that is that is given. I think to content creators a little bit more than institutions mm. because it feels um, authentic. It feels like I'm talking on behalf of myself and as a real fan. And so I think what we're seeing right now is this evolution of the professional fan. Um, and so where I've been thinking about for months is do fans make great content creators or do they make the absolute worst content creators because we're <laughs> so fanatical about something yeah. that we don't have that journalistic integrity. 
which some people would argue some journalists are extremely biased, but that is a thing when people ask me, so are you a journalist? Are you an influencer? I'm like, no, I'm somewhere in between. Mm. And the only reason why I say I don't feel comfortable saying I'm a journalist is I don't about, I don't have to obey by the same journalistic integrity that a journalist does have to obey by. Mm. Um, but it's a whole shift that's happening right now. It's It's very different in terms of how we would have you know, not even a couple of years ago, really. Like it's such a new thing that, like you said, that this funny transition between these different um, people who are involved in the sport and bringing us information and content and everything else. And this funny little, I I don't want to call it a scale, but you've kind of got journalism up here right down to kind of people who are just talking about experiences potentially. I would probably put them in the influencer category perhaps, where it's more about experience as opposed to, education information potentially some people would disagree with that I'm sure but that's still a you know tell me tell me what the difference is between a content creator and influencer well it's going to depend on the person but you talked about trust which I find really interesting because and and the difference between trusting a driver versus a team versus an institution and the trust that goes into content creators as well yeah um I think it's interesting partially because I think they're it's probably a little bit easier to trust because it's a person as opposed to a business. Yeah. And I think a lot of us are just, just kind of uh, skeptical enough to not really yeah. ever trust in a business or an institution. Um, but I can imagine it would be really tricky collaborating with a team and wanting to build trust with that team yeah. and all of the members of it. But you've also got your own approach when it comes to taking that external, very analytical lens to the sport and to the teams. So my question, I suppose, is how do you kind of maintain the authenticity in your streaming and social media content while you're gradually working more closely, in particular, obviously with Aston Martin and the teams and maintaining that trust with them? It's such a great question. I think I'm fortunate that I come at it with like two decades of working in in corporations that I, you know, I'm a spokesperson for companies and my approach is always a very human approach. I don't believe in the PR-driven approach. I always know that there's moments when you need to be media trained and you need to have the right messaging and you need to come at it with a little bit of a PR lens. Um, But there is a way of doing it that feels very human. And look, it is kind of at odds with our culture today, which is a culture of no mistakes, especially in America Mm. and especially with content creators and influencers. We love putting people on a pedestal super high where they can do no harm, do no wrong. But we love the moment they make a mistake or they do something that you don't agree with of tearing them down. Like that is a culture that we have built, which I think is very scary, especially for content creators where, no, I don't have a boss that can fire me. But tomorrow, everyone can decide they absolutely loathe me and decide we're not engaging with you anymore. Or someone can make up a completely fabricated story about me and run with it. And then it spreads like wildfire and you're just sat there Mm -hmm. going, but it's completely inaccurate. And what what happened? What? what?" And and so I think that for me is is very scary. But that's always why I, I don't know how to be any other way but a flawed individual. Like I... That is the only thing I know how to be, which is a work in progress and a flawed individual. And I think, again, because I'm a little bit older than some of the the Gen Z content creators and influencers that I'm seeing, that I am just absolutely in awe of because they come at it from a very different approach or they were born into into this era where they're so much more comfortable than I am being online. So I I take a lot of cues and I learn a lot from that generation. But I think that the thing that I do have that I'm very grateful for is those, you know, decades of experience being in that space and being a bit more cautious with what I say, but also being very, very comfortable saying, I have no idea. I don't know how to answer that. I don't Mm. know how to approach that question. Or I feel ill-informed to be able to tackle that question. Or, you know what, that's a really interesting question and I, you know, or topic and I, I wish I had the toolkit or I wish I felt like I had the information to be able to tackle that, but I'll come back. So I have no issues saying I'm wrong. I have no issues saying I don't know. And I think that has helped me. And I think that's what I get a lot of feedback on my streams is I don't sit, put myself on a pedestal, which means that people can't put me on a pedestal because mm-hmm. I always say I'm flawed. I don't know. I'm a work in progress. I hope I'm smarter today than I was yesterday and tomorrow than I am today. Um, but that I think has helped bridge that connection and create that level of trust. And I think the teams, from a team's perspective and towing that line, that is a delicate line, is I only work with teams who actually want to work with me 
and that authentic voice. Mm. I have a lot of people who say like, if you continue being so honest, you know, Formula One's never going to want to work with you. They're never going to hire you. It's like, I don't want to be hired by Formula One. Like that's not, that's not my goal. Doesn't mean that someone who's out there building a creator brand who has the desire to be hired by Formula One is doing it wrong. I think that's incredible. That's just not my journey that I've chosen mm. for myself. I've done the working for corporates. And that's what I love with content creators is some people have used that as a portfolio to be hired by the teams, hired by Formula One. And others have been used to like, no, no, this is how you partner with me. Um, again, no right or wrong way. There's like all of these different avenues, which I think is pretty cool. Um, but what I've noticed and what I always say is like, look, if there's a team that looks at me and says, oof, that's not for us, that's totally fine. But also that's probably the team that I wouldn't want to work with in the first place. Because the reality, when people go, oof, that that's, you know, sensitive topic. What I'm talking about is, you know, how do we tackle racism in the sport? How do we tackle xenophobia? How do we tackle or protect the LGBTQ plus communities? How do mm. we tackle sexism? Like, if you don't agree with that, then yeah, we're probably not the right partner. Um, but there is a way... The biggest lesson I've learned is people have, I think people want to work with people. People want to work with people, full stop, not institutions, not brands, just like mm. human beings. Yep. <laughs> and I think the less you put yourself on the pedestal and the less you approach, thing of, approach things of, I'm going to teach you about something. And the more you approach it of, let's figure this out together. Let's go on a discovery journey. The more people are comfortable with that. And so mm. I never pretend that I know more than someone else. I never come at it of, I'm going to educate you on something. I come at it as, hey, there's some really cool stuff here that I think we should all try and figure out together or learn about together or like start tackling together or asking questions. And I think that works for a lot of people. And for some people, it doesn't. But I think where our trust has been broken down as consumers and citizens over the past couple of decades is hearing institutions tell us, you know, shut up, we know better. This is how it has to be done. You know, you look at even during the pandemic of just like, who are we supposed to listen to? Yeah. The WHO was saying one thing. The governments were saying another. People mm. were saying they were wrong. right? And you just go, wait, we've lost complete trust in our institutions. And so there's something there I think that's really interesting. Um, but look, very, very tactically, I, I just got to stick true to who you are. Um, don't pretend to be someone you're not. That that gets pretty obvious very quickly. And then I think there's also understanding who you're working with. Like I'm fully aware that, you know, when I work with Aston Martin, they have Cognizant and Ramco as title sponsors. I'm obviously going to do my due diligence and my research. I'm obviously never going to be there and try and humiliate someone. Mm -hmm. I'm obviously, you know, get prepared of what we want to talk about. Like, there's certain things that you have to do that I think you can still take true to yourself. And, oh, my God, Sebastian Vettel was the perfect example of that, of saying, you know, when he was on a British TV program and they asked, well, aren't you being a little bit, you know, isn't it a bit ironic that you're sat here preaching, you know, what we should do for climate change and yet you're driving these oil or fuel guzzling machines? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to pretend it's not. Absolutely. But yeah. both things can be true. I can want to save the planet and it so happens that I am one of the top athletes in this sport that also happens to be a car that uses yeah. fuel, but also <laughs> knowing that this sport is trying to figure out how to have sustainable fuel. Like I, this is the thing that I don't like about the internet is very few things is not everything is black and white. Yeah. Not everything is it's one or the other. There is this duality of both can be true, yeah. um, which I always love, but it's a hard one to toy. Yeah, definitely. And it's also you kind of go, you know, and Formula One is more likely to achieve those goals by having someone like Sebastian Vettel involved in the sport. So yeah. you can say, okay, well, um, this is too hypocritical for me to be involved with. So I'm going to go sit on the sidelines. Yeah. Okay. How is that going to help achieve yeah. those broader goals about trying to crack yeah. science around emissions and, you know, improving yeah. the, you know, or, sorry, reducing the impact on, on the environment when it comes to the sport. Yeah. So is it not better that he's actually involved when he's so aligned with those values and goals? And also we're all hypocritical. Like we're all yeah. trying to do oh. one thing and doing another. Like I'm sat here going, okay, energy is a problem. Okay. Okay. I'm cold. I live in California, but I'm cold. So my heating's on right now. Yeah. Hypocritical. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm trying to figure out how I, you know, save the green forest. And at the same time, I probably bought something that had the wrong kind of oil in it. And I'm just like, oh, probably shouldn't have got palm oil. Like we're all hypocritical, but as long totally. as we're open about it and trying our best. And I think that's what I'm just like, it's hard to be on the internet and constantly trying your best and being open up. 
going to make mistakes because my whole life is on the internet right now. So, yeah, I'm going totally. to make mistakes. It, ha- it happened to me on it's... our last podcast. So we were talking about Tell liveries. Me. We're talking about liveries yeah. and the launches and that type of thing, which will be a great segue because we'll move into that in a moment. But I, so something frustrated me with the Aston Martin launch, which was during um, Lawrence Stroll's speech. He said, yeah. um, I've been pushing the guys and pushing the guys and this and the other. And he just kept saying it over and over again. He's like, the guys, the guys, the guys. And he wasn't talking about the drivers. He was talking about the team. I was like, the wider team. Jessica Hawkins standing right next to you, for goodness sake. Like, talk about the team, don't talk about the guys. Yeah. Well, guess what? Earlier in that podcast, I had said yes. I was talking about the hey guys. The, the battery placement. <laughs> or to be fair, if you're talking to boys, it's kind of fine. Yeah. But I was talking about the battery yeah. placement on uh, for Duracell on the Williams livery. I said, imagine being the person who came up with that and the the light bulb moment. You would have said, guys, 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 I've got it. And. When I, I don't listen to all of our podcasts back, but sometimes I do to kind of go, how can I improve? How can I learn? How did that go? Did I interrupt too much? Whatever it might be, just trying to learn, get better. And I listened to that one back and I was like, oh God, in the same podcast that I've criticised what he said, I've done the exact same thing. You've done it. And look. I'm imperfect, but it's all about going. I'm still not a bad person. I'm trying to work out this thing as well. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. Lawrence yeah. Stroll is, I think, both of us, like a handful of decades or older than us. So he has mm. a handful of decades to shake either the unconscious bias or things that we've said and done over and over. I had the exact same. My dad doesn't, he's like, I don't understand how I, you know, how you became such a stark feminist. He's so here for it. And I did the <laughs> same mistake when he was talking about his boss. And I was like, mm. oh, um, where is he from? And he looked at me and went, she? And I was like, I made the assumption. I heard boss. And again, but it's not new. If you Mm. talk to me as a child, everything was the boss was he. God, I was raised in a French school where one of the rules is le masculin l'emporte toujours, which is the male will always dominate the female when you're looking at grammar. Um, It's always if there's a man and a woman in a sentence, it all goes to masculine. And Mm -hmm. as a child, I would sit at a table and repeat, the man always dominates, the man always dominates, the male always dominates. And you're just like, this is insane. And you you take a step back and you look at that. But yeah, I made the set and my dad, and it was so funny because my dad very much just looked at me in the eyes and went, she? And I was like, wait, what are you talking about? It's a woman. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Always. And so we learn. They sneak up you on know, you. Yeah, 100%. And so we learn. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's so hard. We're all- <laughs> it's hard. It's yeah. hard. So let's talk about teams and liveries. We touched on that. And you, yeah. you mentioned that you were at the Aston Martin launch, so hosting the fan event in London. Yeah. What does your work with a team tell, tell you about where they're going or kind of what they're trying to achieve as a business and how they engage with fans. Because that's the first year we've mm. really seen such a concerted effort, not just at Aston Martin, but at lots of the teams yeah. to try and put their fans closer to an event like a like a launch. There's from a more, much more macro broader sense, there's something really interesting that Formula One is one of those sports where, you know, I need, I, I keep saying this, but I really do at some point. More than I'm just gonna say more than ninety percent of the fans will never get to attend a race IRL. Mm. Like they're just mm-hmm. not, and it's kind of a wackadoo stat to think that ninety yep. percent of the fans will just never attend a race. And I and I feel that that stat is so at odds with how little Formula One has pushed good digital content. Don't get me wrong, we've got F1 TV, but I feel like that's the latest and most novel thing that they've innovated on and we're still missing a lot. They could do so much more with their YouTube channels and their social channels. And I think they've started doing some incredible stuff with social, um, especially with TikTok. But there is something really interesting there. As a fan, we're not getting a lot that isn't happening on site at the tracks. There could be so much more. And so one example for me is, I thought it was really cool that Aston Martin had this vision. So move away from the macro level to more of the micro level of just like from a team perspective I thought it was really smart of them to go well what can we offer fans who can't attend a race Um, and sometimes these fan events happen in the same location at the same weekend that a race is happening sometimes it's not for example they had the launch happening in Silverstone but they had the fan event in London Um, but I think for Aston Martin something that they did really well and were very smart about was 
Two years ago, they were looking at this going, we're coming back to the grid after 60 plus years of being away. What's the story we want to tell and what do we want to be known for? And how do we move away of simply being known as the James Bond car? Mm. What, and so they were very smart in that they probably looked around and thought, well, there's the rise of the creator economy. There's all social media is booming. TikTok is booming. And then, you know, they had their partnership with TikTok and then they started engaging. And I think they were some of the first to engage with content creators like Miss McIntosh and Hannah and myself. And so I think what they were trying to do with this was just like, okay, the way we're going to win is we're going to need to tap into all of the new younger audiences that are spending most of their time consuming content digitally um, versus our older demographic who might know and love the Aston Martin brand and its products because the reality is, I will speak for myself, but I certainly don't have the money right now to afford an Aston Martin car. Um, so that might have been not my first choice of just like who, you know, who do I associate with? I do, however, drink a can of Red Bull a day. So that might have been, from a product lens, that's my association. But I think Aston were very clever in how do we tap into this audience? And we can't, Lawrence can't, Lance can't, Seb Vettel can't. So cool, let's get the fans turned professional fans, turned content creators, and let's find the ones who aren't already associated with a team or who are a fan of a team, but see those who are looking at the sport as a whole. And let's figure out how we tell stories together because it's the most simplistic form, that's what it was. Um, I don't make any predictions of cars on checks. They're all abysmally wrong and it's just very mortifying and embarrassing. And as much as I'm fine with learning online, I'm not fine with completely ridiculing myself online. But the, I did make a prediction this year that this was going to be the year where we see both traditional media teams and drivers and Formula One actually embrace content creators way, way more. And mm. my God, wasn't that more true um, when you saw the launch, um, all the different car launches, content creators were absolutely everywhere from presenting to hosting to being there. I will say this, the teams that are going to win, I think, with content creators and how they engage are the teams that are going to have an actual plan of how mm. they want to content. So it's it's not an influencer type thing. It's not because you invite 10 content creators, 20 content creators, that you're going to get 10 or 20 times more content as a result. Content creators are there to create content. So they need access to create that content and they need a program. And so I think that's going to be a learning curve for a lot of teams. And Aston Martin has, you know, a year or two ahead of most teams in how they engage and how they work. I don't just get invited to just sip champagne. Like I, that, I would yeah. be bored out of my mind. What do you need to do? What's the job here at hand? Yeah, that's, so that's that's really interesting to me. And when you looked at something like Aston Martin in comparison to, for example, I know there's been a lot of criticism, but I do think it's interesting and not just to criticise but to say how is it different is the Red Bull launch, yeah. which obviously you were at as well, yeah. to see where it didn't appear as though, certainly from the outside looking in, it didn't appear as though there was much of a plan for that group. The traditional Agreed. media sources appeared to know what they were doing and where they were kind of you look at yeah. the, the setup and that type of thing, what we could see with streaming. Yeah. Whereas the content creators, I was like, oh, it doesn't look things like things are quite as planned out there. So like you said, a I step or two ahead perhaps. couldn't agree more. Couldn't mm. agree more. Um, I'll give credit where credit is due is there's a lot from the launch that I absolutely loved. I think the launch didn't come across digitally as well as it did in person. Yeah. It was definitely more chaotic in person. But I, for example, absolutely loved the conversation um, with the four other athletes. I thought that was genius and brilliant. And in the room, it came across really well. Um, Eileen is spectacular. Fencer is incredible. Um, so there are things I actually... But here's the thing. When I say that car launches, I think that teams are going to have to figure out what they're trying to do because they can't be everything to everyone. So again, yeah. Aston Martin dividing their car launch into two, I thought was really smart because you had the Silverstone event, which was for the VVIPs, for the stakeholders, for the partners, for the media. You get a close look at the car, you get the time. And then the fan event was something completely different. We got to sit and chat with the number one and number two mechanic. We got to talk about how they were building the car, what they're, ex it was something completely different, but we didn't need to see specs and renderings of the new car and see the car up close. We wanted the stories, we wanted the networking, we wanted a fun event. And so I, again, I think Aston Martin did that really well. And But I think where it might have fallen a little flat for content creators in Red Bull is we were, content creators were definitely an afterthought. And here you start seeing the, the variety of content creators. Ellie, F1 Ellie has, 
is an ambassador for Aston uh, for Red Bull. So she's Red embedded Bull, yeah. in the team. And what mm. she was able to do is she this is on the back of years of building trust with the team and with the drivers. So she is definitely embedded into the programming. I will say this that I think most people aren't aware of is most of the content creators that were invited were invited via Ford, not Red Bull. Right. Um, Interesting. So that's also a difference. And here's something also really interesting is Ford, this is new for Ford in this era of being back involved in Formula One. So all of the teams and the agencies that Ford is working with, this I think was their first foray in how you work with Formula One and Formula One teams. And so I think everyone got a bit of a, whoa, okay, what's happening? And so I think there might have been a desire for the content creators to be more part of the programming, but the reality is it looked a little different because we all know that working with Formula One and in Formula One is really tricky. Um, but yes, I agreed. I I was very lucky that I got invited by Red Bull, but it was for me, it was definitely an afterthought because I was just like, hey, I think I might be in New York. And they were like, oh, you should come and hang out. So I think I had a different experience that I was truly just like, shove me in the mix. I'm just happy to be here. Mm. Um, but I definitely think, yeah, you can't have content creators as an afterthought. They have to be part of the programming or you're just wasting everyone's time and you're just not going to get the most out of it. Um, but I did, I do love what Red Bull have built up with F1 Eddie. I think that's... But it's different. It's very different than the relationship I have with Aston Martin. I'm not part of the Aston Martin team. Mm. Again, no right or wrong way. It's just there's different approaches. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting, like you said, in terms of how they're going about it, either having that more of an embedded approach as opposed to a collaboration. And I think they'll all be kind of learning from each other to see how that goes when it comes to their fan engagement um, as well. I think we'll see a very different shift again next year when it comes to not just the launch, obviously that's most recent, and so we, we can talk about it, but um, other events as well, as you mentioned, kind of throughout the year yeah. and understanding how they they best use all of the platforms that are out there and the people who, like you said, that audience is already there. They're already, they've already yeah. got the, you know, they're sold, so to speak. Um, and, and, and how they leverage like that. that. You can offer yeah. something, yeah, you can, you can offer something new and different. And I've always been thinking about this, like, the, the partnership that Red Bull have with someone like F1 Ellie has to be really worth F1 Ellie's time because mm. she can't work with any other team. Like this is an exclusivity deal because she is an ambassador. Yeah, and so it, I, I look at it and it has to be worth her while, both I imagine from a financial perspective, but also from a what do I get out of it? Um, so of course there's going to be more thought that's going to be put into it. But that's always how I look at things as well is, yeah, if you want an ambassadorship, you have to make it worthwhile for that content creator. Absolutely. Yeah. Very interesting point. Like you said, that's, it's an ex- exclusivity thing. So it needs to be something that's, it's aiding yeah, her as well, either professionally or, or otherwise. And I know you've got a very busy, busy yeah. day, Tony. So I'm going to get stuck into some questions, which we would probably prefer to have three and a half hours, four hours to, to, to get truly stuck <laughs> into, but let's have a, have a bit of a go. Um, and one of the questions I would love to chat to you about is around what we're seeing recently with the FIA in terms of um, yeah. restricting uh, drivers, I'll just call it free speech, even though the whole thing is yeah. a bit bizarre in terms of how we even define that, especially as we're talking about things like political, religious and personal statements. Define personal statement for me. I don't know. Um, yeah. It just seems impossible to me to try and untangle something that is just so fundamentally tangled, which is politics and sport basically. And you can take that in terms of F1, but it's other sports as well. How do you think this is likely to play out throughout this year when it comes to drivers and teams being able to talk about what they value in the context of what the FIA has put out in this policy? I think they made a massive mistake because I think for a desire to want to keep politics out of the sport, I think they've just made 2023 probably going to be one of the most political years. The most political years ever. I think, like, I truly think this is going to be top. And and if you look at the amount of articles we have had since that that has been brought brought up and added, um, everyone's talking about it because, again, it was extremely vague. And I feel like every time they try and explain it, they dig themselves in a hole. And look, to your point, we could talk about this for hours, but I, those were my two things, is I definitely think we're going to speak more about politics. So for a desire to keep politics out of the sport, there, I think they've put it now front and centre. Mm. And then there's another piece here for me, which is 
Go back to the Roman Empire in ancient Greece. Athletes used sporting arenas and venues. Um, used sporting arenas were the same venues where the people could be heard to talk about politics. So even in ancient Greece and Roman Empire, where they were hosting the first Olympics, these were the same venues where their politicians were talking to their citizens about what they wanted to do. So this isn't new. Like this is exactly the same arena that was used to share, you know, discontent with the status quo or, or political ends. And this was BCE time. So we're talking thousands and thousands of years. So people who are just like, oh, this is a new woke thing. No, it's not. We mm. can't keep politics out of sports. Sports has almost always played a pivotal role in politics. Um, mega events, you know, sporting events like the Olympics, the World Cup, Formula One. GPs, they provide this very unique and tangible opportunity for governments in their pursuit of symbolic politics. And so this is where I think the irony is palpable, is governments in their pursuit of this symbolic politics can use these world sporting events, but the athletes, who, by the way, you need to host any of these events, (laughs) are not allowed to use these same platforms to speak about Mm. the things that are important to them. Um, so there's something, there's an irony there of you can't just allow governments to want to refrain a dominant narrative on a global stage with all eyes on them, but tell the drivers that they can't do the same. Mm. Um, and this has been happening for years. Um, these global events have been lobbying and marketing tactics disguised as global sporting events. They just always have. Um, so yeah, that's where my mind goes to. If governments have been so blatantly allowed to use mega sporting events to their their advantage to spin a narrative. Why can't the athletes do exactly the same and use these same moments and platforms to actually, by the way, do good, um, to actually talk about things of value. And it's been interesting watching the FIA try and circle back and go, well, you know, it can't all become political. F1 was never, they're they're making it out as if drivers like, whoa, 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 hold, let's do a 40 minute break and let's all sit in a circle and, you know, discuss our values. No, a guy wore a t-shirt. Another guy did a hand gesture. Another guy had a, what are we talking about? Um, Mm. So I think they've made into something that it's not. That's what I find a bit bizarre, especially when you look at the, like you said, the backtracking or the trying to articulate what they actually mean by it just doesn't make a lot of sense and I'm there going I don't see the problem yeah I I can't tell you an event over the last couple of years where someone stood up on a a podium and then caused a a massive issue because they've made some political statement like it's just a non-issue um and they're still like journalists are still allowed to ask their questions there you go and even if they're making statements, because I do believe that athletes, if they choose to do so, are mm. can be incredible vehicles for societal change and having an opinion and raising consciousness about something. I can best assure that a lot of people probably didn't happen with didn't know what had happened with Breonna Taylor and didn't understand the atrocities that were happening mm. in America if Lewis hadn't brought it to it. But again, he did it incredibly discreetly. That's the power here. Is if you wish to be informed, he's wearing a t-shirt and as an individual you can go, hey, what's happening there? What's that? It's not as if he's like stopping the presses and forcing everyone's eyeballs onto a topic. And again, a perfect example is like Rihanna during the Super Bowl with her Fenty ad. She didn't mention Fenty. She didn't say, hold up a minute. She just, she did it incredibly discreetly. And again, this is different because it's the seller product, but the smartest people out there know how to put a topic in a conversation and do it as discreetly. No, if you didn't, if you didn't want to buy makeup, she didn't need to. Yeah. Rihanna didn't stop her Super Bowl halftime show and said, hold up a minute, as everyone thought she would be. There's a product here. She just put it up, touched herself up, and off she went. It took half a second. And mm. so, again, like that's to your point. I feel like that's what's been happening with, with the activism today is if you don't, if you want to ignore it, you can generally ignore it. Yeah. I think what's really interesting as well is that I think coming into the season, it's actually also really put a spotlight on how much we seem to have kind of we're pinning our hopes and dreams on these athletes and and the teams as well to kind of speak truth to power. And I just kind of go, I'm not necessarily sure it's going to happen. In fact, you've actually had some some drivers already who've kind of said, look, it's not really my thing to get super involved with, um, you know, politics, so to speak, or um, different societal issues. I I am just here to race and that's okay as well. Um, And I think it's really interesting, but it's, it shows how much we just hold our athletes in such high regard. And I think potentially that is somewhat misplaced um, occasionally because 
Yeah, we yeah. kind of feel like they're representations and as of we've us. been talking about, they're humans. <laughs> yeah. They are, and they're humans. They're going to make mistakes, and let's allow, to, uh, allow them to make their mistakes, and they're going to have personal opinions, and they might not always be in line, but most of these guys are not idiots, you know, they they're not, you know, the Red Bull team isn't all of a sudden going to have their drivers rock up with a kind of monster tomorrow. Like, you know, they know what they're doing. Can we, we can't also, I just think this, again, goes back to that shift of power to the athletes. I think Formula One is slowly realizing that they need these drivers more than they need them. Um, and we just got to allow them to be, we can't, they are not products. These, you know, mm. actors, musicians, athletes aren't products. And I think it would be disgusting of us to just ask them to shut up and race and not be a human and be a human first. Like, mm. it's not fair. No, like you said, it's, and, and we're often reminded of that, unfortunately, in some of the most um, trickiest, tricky moments of the sport is when it comes to accidents and things like that. All of a sudden, we're kind of plunged back into this reality of going, oh, wait a second, these are 20 people. And their their lives are at stake every yeah. single time they go out, and we're kind of suddenly thrust back into that reality of the the human side of things. Um, exactly. Unfortunately, it takes those moments to remind us about it. Um, Tony, yeah. I feel like I could chat to you all afternoon about all sorts of things. I feel um, like we could have a back and forth on this. I know, I know, a hundred percent. You'll just have to come back on the show, and we can chat about all the other topics I would love to discuss. Um, but before I let you go, how can our listeners um, engage with your content? Where will they find you? Um, and and what can they expect from, from you this year? Oh, I love that question. Um, more of the same. I'm always constantly adapting and figuring out, you know, different types of content series, but I still always focus on the intersection of sports, Formula One, obviously um, politics and, and tech, um, which I always find fascinating. So you can expect more of that. And you can find me on TikTok at F1 Tony or everywhere else, Tony Cowan Brown. Um, yeah, that's correct. I was like, am I? Yes, that is right. What's my name? Um, who am I? I should really know my socials. <laughs> yeah, who am I? What am I doing here? Um, I should really know my socials by now. Um, but yeah, F1, F1 Tony on TikTok is probably the easiest for most people. No but worries. Thank you so much for having me. This was just so fun. It was great. It was great. And we look forward to having you back to talk about all of the big topics. But thanks so much for joining us and good luck for the rest of the year. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me, Tony. So much to cover. I have so many more questions, um, but we will just have to have you back on the show and good luck for all of your coming work in the content creating space with not just Formula One, but all things motorsport, politics and everything that's in between. See you next time. Podcast Network.